now, The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Whole Home Show. I'm Tony Joe. I'm your host here every week. We bring you tips, education, and things home-related, things that you always are curious, you're typically curious about, you want to know more about, we're here to deliver it for you. Whether you are in the real estate market or if you're just looking for information, things about real estate, about your home, about your revenue property, decorating ideas, anything, this is the place to be. Our show comes to you every week with the support of our show partners. Denise Webster, mortgage broker with Dominion Lending Center's Modern Mortgage Group. J.P. Sellers, insurance advisor with Westland Insurance, operating as Island Savings Insurance. The Sitka Law Group, for your real estate, wills and estates, corporate and personal injury needs. And Shoreline Inspections, with Reese Jacob and Monica Gass. If you need help or direction in anything related to real estate, that these experts and professionals and uh, service providers can help you out with, give them a call. They would be happy to help you. I can help you as well, too. I've been selling real estate here in Greater Victoria for for over 29 years. I'm a rare born and raised Victorian. I've never left here. I love our town. I'm a huge community supporter. And I've helped hundreds of people with their real estate goals. Whether you're buying or selling, I could help you too. You can find the contact information for myself and the rest of the whole home show team on our website, cfax1070.com. Look under shows. There you'll find us, the whole home show with me, Tony Joe. And all of their information is there. Give them a call. It is March, and one of the things you need to know about as a homeowner is the British Columbia Speculation and Vacancy Tax. This, along with a number of other measures, has been added by our provincial government with a hope to help affordability and to stop the escalation of prices, especially in key areas. Those would be Vancouver, Fraser Valley, Nanaimo, Kelowna, and, of course, Greater Victoria. So our discussion today is on the speculation and vacancy tax, along with the British Columbia foreign buyers tax. We'll be observing the what happens in British Columbia here, real estate-wise, from the eyes of a non-Canadian buyer or an occupant, including what a non-resident needs to do to get, for instance, a mortgage in order to buy a property. Why are we doing this? It's so you can understand what a non-Canadian needs to know about owning here in British Columbia, specifically in Victoria. Uh, here's a spoiler for you, by the way. It's not easy. There's a lot of hurdles to, to jump over, but we're going to cover them today. So our guests today are show sponsors, Gurpreet Randawa with the Sitka Law Group and also Denise Webster, our mortgage broker. We always start with our weekly listener question, and if you have a story to tell us uh, that you'd like to cover on our show here, give us a call. Our number is 250-414-6540. That's 250-414-6540. Or find us online, cfax1070.com, and we'll discuss it on air. Now, what's happening out there in the marketplace? As both Denise and Gurpreet will tell you, things are busy right now. Uh, spring came early in Victoria and actually in, a several, in several other marketplaces as well, too, as we found out. And, of course, we're seeing multiple offers come up again, multiple offers, bidding wars. This is where more than one buyer wants to buy a house that a seller is offering for sale. This is a great situation for any seller. Every seller wants a bidding war. It means that they're going to get a strong price, means that they're going to get cleaner offers, and it also means that it's probably going to sell a lot quicker than it would, than it would for instance, in a normal or balanced market. 
Now, on the flip side, it is terrible for buyers. Buyers hate multiple offers. It means you're going in and you are probably having to pay more than you had hoped to pay for the house. And also, too, you may not have the benefit of all the conditions that you may have wanted to put in there. For instance, subject to the sale of your home. But the other thing, too, as a buyer is it means there is a chance that you won't get the house. If this is your dream home and you really want it and need it, you've got to go in strong because if you don't, somebody else is going to get it. But a question that has come up and has come up more than once recently is as a seller, when you're a seller and you're looking at offers and you have multiple offers, why wouldn't I accept the highest offer even if it has conditions. All right, so uh, I bumped into one of these just last week. We had seven offers on a house close to the Hillside Mall. Uh, there was a spread in prices. Now, I should say right now, all of the offers came in over list price. Uh, that's kind of telling, by the way, because that's not true in every marketplace. Uh, when there's a transition, sometimes we see uh, buyers even come in below list price, uh, which strategically is not very helpful. Uh, but in any event, this, this situation, this case here in the uh, property close to Hillside Mall, there was a spread. There was a range of uh, $20,000 from the lowest to the highest. But there was also a number of conditions in most of the offers. Conditions, of course, subject to financing, subject to building inspection, subject to title, subject to uh, whatever. There's also one party that uh, asked the seller to get the house professionally cleaned and carpet shampooed. Let's not forget that the more uh, things, more items that you put in an offer, the less attractive it becomes for a seller. So the conversation that I had with my seller uh, had to do with which offer to take, obviously, because what happens in the rules of conduct here is the seller gets to review all of the offers at the same time. Uh, we set a deadline. So, for instance, the property went up on the market on Thursday, and because of the activity that we had, the seller instructed me to hold off offers until the following Wednesday. Now, why do we do that? We did that because we wanted to enable every interested party to conduct their due diligence first. And this meant if they're getting bank financing, getting an appraisal done, uh, getting a building inspection done if they wanted to. So people had Friday, Saturday, maybe Sunday, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday in order to conduct all of those things. Uh, and as a result, one of the parties came in with no conditions at all. They had a bank appraisal done because they were still getting financing, but it was not conditional financing. They also had a building inspection done. They did all of their due diligence. They weren't the highest priced offer, though. There was one offer that was more money, but it's the one that had all the conditions on it. And basically, the, the seller said to me, it was a family, by the way, because it's a power of attorney sale. The family in our conference call said, what is the risk of going with the highest offer? And I had to explain to them, the risk is that one or any of the conditions that the buyer had may not be able to be satisfied. And as a result, that sale might fall apart and collapse. To which one of the daughters said, well, if that happens, can't we go back to the other parties or go back to that one offer that was unconditional uh, and get them back to the table? And that would be an ideal situation. But in my experience, having seen this many times over the years, this is what happens. Seven offers, 
one gets accepted. That means six parties are let down or unhappy. Could you imagine being that party that was not accepted? You'd feel shunned. You'd feel that you were turned down, turned away. Some people get angry, by the way. They go, oh, the seller, they didn't take my offer. You know, we're nice people. Why didn't they do that? Could you imagine if you were that party and you get a call back a week later and and the agent, your agent says, oh, that sale didn't come together. Do you want to come back? Well, a couple things can happen. First of all, maybe you found another house in that week. Happens. This is highly possible. Uh, or the other thing is if you are still interested in that house, you might take on the opinion of, well, you know, I'm upset with the seller. They didn't take my offer in the first place. So maybe if I offered X amount of dollars last week, this time I'm going to offer X minus 20000 or whatever. So there's a lot of emotions at play, and there's a lot of people who get upset in the multiple offer scenario. What we ended up discussing with the family was, what is the value of certainty? What is the value of surety? So when you know that there are no conditions, the buyer is making an absolute commitment to buy your house, is it worth taking a little bit less money for that certainty? And in this particular case, the family decided yes, because they knew that the sale would be done, uh, the buyer will be paying a large deposit. Uh, I did tell them, as I tell people all the time, in my experience, uh, 29 years, I've only had two offers collapse between the point of time that they're unconditional and the completion date. So uh, failures are very rare after a deal is is, uh, confirmed. So what is the value of certainty? And that's the question that you need to ask yourself. Sometimes it's not just the price. Most of the time it's the strength of the offer and how strong it is. Uh, so many things to consider in this marketplace. Things are getting crazy, uh, and we need more inventory. So, hey, listen, if anyone's been thinking about selling, maybe now's the time to go online. You can always give us a call. We'd be happy to chat with you. But we're going to be talking about the British Columbia speculation and vacancy tax, foreign buyer tax, qualification for non-BC residents, and so much more after we take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Thanks for coming back. You're listening to The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. It is March, and homeowners would have received in the mail something called the British Columbia, British Columbia Speculation and Vacancy Tax Declaration Form. And this is a little public service reminder for anyone who's listening who is a property owner in Greater Victoria or any of the other four areas in British Columbia, those being Vancouver, Fraser Valley, Nanaimo, Kelowna, in addition to here, Victoria. As a reminder, you've got to fill out your form and you've got, you have to apply and get it completed by March 31st or else you will be assessed the British Columbia Speculation and Vacancy Tax. With us right now is one of our show partners, Gurpreet Randawa with Sitka Law Group. Gurpreet, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Tony. Thanks for coming back. This is one of these topics. Now, the speculation and vacancy tax is actually something that you as lawyers do not handle on a regular basis. Uh, The thing that you handle is the property transfer tax and the foreign buyer tax, which we will be covering. But I think this is really important information for us to share with consumers about the uh, speculation and uh, vacancy tax. So uh, let's start with that. March 31st. Sure, exactly. Yes. So March 31st is the deadline to file your declaration. 
every property owner in BC must file the declaration. So even if it's a husband and wife who own a property together, each of them is going to receive the declaration and each of them needs to file it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are, so the tax this year is 2% for foreign owners and satellite families. And we'll get to what that is shortly. Um, And 0.5% of the assessed value of the property for Canadian citizens or permanent residents. Let's do the math for a quick second here. So let's just say it's an $800,000 house, $800,000 assessed. Yeah. So for uh, British Columbia residents, uh, that's or, about, yep, that's, that's about four thousand. Yeah. So it's five percent. Yep. Right. Point five percent. Point five percent. Thank yep. you. Thank you. Point five percent. And then for the uh, non-residents and foreign foreign buyers, two percent. And satellite families. Yeah. Sixteen thousand dollars. Yeah. For the year. Exactly. Yeah. So if they paid it last year, that's what it is. They pay it this year, that's what it is. Yep. That's assessed every year. Correct. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Um, so why why are we here? I I mean I think there's <laughs> there's various reasons. Um, we we hear about how we're trying to create more affordable housing, and this is one of the initiatives that is that is being used to to be able to do that. Um, they're looking at um, who's primarily claiming their income outside of Canada yeah. and assessing those individuals with with this tax. So I think the main objectives are really affordable housing. Yeah. That's what we hear. And and this is the thing because there is always that conversation about oh you know we've got we're being overrun by foreign buyers we hear all these stories about mm-hmm. uh, houses that sell and it's a foreign entity or foreign buyer and they're not moving in mm-hmm. they're empty houses mm-hmm. how come they're not in the rental uh, market mm-hmm. right now that would help us for rentals mm-hmm. uh, that's the reason why they did it mm-hmm. yeah now. On the other hand, we talk about affordability. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is where I get up on that soapbox just for a moment here. We look at the stats, by the way. So for February, our average sale price uh, and our median sale prices have not gone down. If anything, they're stronger right now. I just talked about multiple offers. Uh, there remains high demand in Gertie Victoria and in so many areas, not just in British Columbia, in Canada as well. Uh, it just makes you wonder if this stuff is really working. I mean, yeah. obviously, the government collected the taxes. Yeah. We know that there was a lot of uh, money collected. I hope yeah. it goes to the right place. Yep, yep, we hope. Yeah. Um, and and do remember, there are several exemptions. Yeah. So even though this tax is in place, you you likely do qualify for an exemption. Um, there are several. So the main one is the principal residence exemption. Um, uh, because the thing is, everyone is everyone falls under this. But we are exempt, like the three of us, for instance, because yeah. we own real estate and we are we are principal residents, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, so even if you are a foreign national, you might still qualify for a credit mm-hmm. um, or an exemption, uh, depending on the use. So they're really looking at the use of the property at the time, as of December 31st of each year. So yes. you'll receive the declaration in March. They're going to look at your use of the property during the previous year. And if you don't qualify for an exemption, it's due in July. Um, but do look at all the exemptions available. As I mentioned, the main one is the principal residence exemption. Yeah. There's also an exemption for revenue properties. So if you are renting out property um, and you're not a member of a satellite family, that's a family who's essentially claiming the majority of their income outside of Canada. So and that would be, for instance, if father works overseas yeah. and yeah. earns their income overseas and then has their child going to UVic or something like that. Yeah. Or, okay. Exactly. That's a satellite family. That's a satellite family. They may still qualify for an exemption, um, but if you are earning the majority of your income outside of Canada, you may not be eligible. Yeah. Yep. Depending on um, on the tenant. 
So if, for example, you have a tenant who is a principal residence and the property is their principal or their Canadian citizen or permanent resident, you might still qualify. So they're really looking at your income where it's earned as a property owner and the tenant situation as well in determining whether or not you qualify for that exemption. So the other thing too is if the property is rented out for six months, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's a minimum period of six months out of the year. Yeah, because really the intent is they wanted to drive anyone who had an empty house to actually put it on the rental market, uh, which obviously is a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, how about, does it come up about things like um, short-term vacation rentals and stuff like that? Yeah, so short-term vacation rentals, um, may still you may still qualify as long as the total period mm-hmm. that the property is being occupied is at least six months. Yeah. Yeah. So you can have, you know, various periods, short term periods, as long as the total six months. Um, but you also want to look at, you know, any restrictions within the property. So if you're in a strata that doesn't Bylaws. allow short term rentals and you have no choice. Yeah. And then zoning. Exactly. And then there's also uh, taxation issues. Exactly. Revenue and stuff like that. So that's yeah. a complicated one. Yeah. That's a complicated one as well. Yeah. I always suggest anytime you are looking at, you know, purchasing a property and you might you might be on the hook for a speculation tax to get some advice before putting in your offer. We talked a little bit about competitive offers and yeah. and trying to do as much due diligence as you can before you put in your offer. So do look into whether or not you'd be on the hook for a speculation tax or foreign buyer tax, which we're going to talk about as well. Ideally, these are things that you should, fig- you should figure out well in advance of even writing an offer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they can call someone like you at Sitka Law Group. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So um, the speculation tax, it's a form. It's a pretty easy process because mm-hmm. now you need the piece of mail because it has a code on it. And then you go online and you complete it. It takes like two minutes. Exactly. And remember, you have to complete that every year. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Just not- because we did last year? Yeah. Doesn't mean you're fine. Exactly. And something you mentioned before as well as uh, whether or not that's a tax that we deal with as lawyers when we're dealing with the closing of a transaction. And and this is one tax that, that well, this is a tax that we're not adjusting for. Mm-hmm. It Unlike property tax, which follows the property, the speculation tax is personal. Yeah. Um, so it follows the individual. So even though it's something you want to look into, uh, we as lawyers are not adjusting for it at the time of completion. Got it. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit now and talk about the property transfer tax because everyone knows BC's had a property transfer tax for years. This is a surprise to Albertans, for instance, when they yep. come over because they don't have one. <laughs> I call it a lifestyle tax. You pay to live here. Oh, a lifestyle yeah. <laughs> tax is true. Um, as a quick reminder, it's 1% in the first 200000 2% on the balance, and then over $3 million, it's... Over $2 million? So okay. Oh, yeah. Yep. It jumps, and then over okay. three million, it jumps again. All yeah. right. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll remind listeners to look it up online because it's a complicated yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, formula. But that is something that you collect on closing. Exactly. So every time you purchase property in BC, you are required to pay property transfer tax. Mm-hmm. The, as you mentioned, it's one percent of the first hundred thousand, two percent of the balance. So if you're looking at a property that with a purchase price of five hundred thousand, that's eight hundred or excuse me, eight thousand yep. in property transfer tax. Um, we collect it at the time of completion, so it forms a part of your down payment. You must have that money available at the time of completion. Yeah. Um, there are, again, various exemptions available, uh, which you should get some advice on. There's the first-time home buyer exemption, newly built home exemption, um, but if you don't qualify, it is a tax that, that's due at completion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, the foreign buyer tax is a whole additional thing. So in addition to this property transfer tax, for someone, again, who is a uh, non-resident, a foreign uh, entity, yeah. how much is that? That's 20%. In, in, Two zero. In the CRD, it's 20% of the of the purchase price in addition 
to property transfer tax. So yeah. use that $500,000 example again. It's 8000 in property transfer tax plus $100,000 Yeah. and the additional property transfer. Yeah, and that's money. That, so you, they, they write a check for that and they never get it back. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, well uh, we're going to do the math on that in a moment. We, we do need to take a quick break here. We're talking about uh, property transfer tax, speculation and vacancy tax, all these fun things here in British Columbia with Gapreet Randawa from the Sitka Law Group. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment and we'll pick up this conversation. Now, The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Thanks for coming back. You're listening to The Whole Home Show and I'm Tony Joe. Our show comes to you every week. With the support of our show partners, Denise Webster, mortgage broker with Dominion Lending Centers, Modern Mortgage Group, J.P. Sellez, insurance advisor with Westland Insurance, operating as Island, Island Savings Insurance, the Sitka Law Group for your real estate, wills and estates, corporate and personal injury needs, and Shoreline Inspections with Reese Jacob and Monica Gass. If you need help or direction in your real estate transaction, give any of the whole home show team members a call. They would love to hear from you. You can find their contact information by visiting cfax1070.com. Look under shows where you'll find the whole home show. And all of their contact information along with mine is there. We'd be happy to help you out. We're having a conversation today about starting with the British Columbia speculation and vacancy tax. We've shifted on to the British Columbia foreign buyer tax. Having a conversation with Capreet Randawa, who was a partner and a lawyer with the Sitco Law Group. Again, uh, thanks for coming back, Capreet. Thanks for having me, Tony. Uh, before the break, we talked about 20%. We talked about an example of a foreign buyer or foreign entity buying a $500,000 property. They have to pay the property transfer tax, which everyone does, mm-hmm. except for first-time home buyers. As long as you meet the uh, correct criteria. criteria. Yeah. Yep. Uh, which is a long list, by the way. People need to look that up. Yep. Uh, so on $500,000, is an $8,000 property transfer tax and... 20%, which is $100,000. So they have to come to the table with $108,000 in taxes yep. just to purchase their, and that's enough 500000 You don't get a lot for 500000 today. Yep. yep, it's hard to find that as it is, so. Yeah. Now, I'm sure people are trying to avoid this, and this is a problem because the government, is, there are anti-avoidance rules, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, so there are penalties in place. Common question I get uh, from a lot of clients is, what if the foreign buyer registers as to a 1% owner of the property, and the Canadian citizen or permanent resident registers 99%. Mm -hmm. Very common question. Um, Do know that these these applications, which involve foreign buyers, are being audited by the Property Transfer Tax Department. Mm -hmm. They are looking at the true substance of the ownership. So who's actually contributing towards the acquisition of that property, who's making ongoing payments. And if you're only registering 99 and 1% to try to minimize the tax that is considered tax evasion, there are penalties. Um, So do be aware that that's that's not an easy way. Yeah, don't go there. there. Um, So you really have to ensure that the substance of the relationship and true ownership is reflected in how you're registered on title. Yeah, you know, we should remind people too, this this is not unique to British Columbia. Mm-hmm. There have been foreign buyer taxes in many marketplaces like uh, Sydney, Australia, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, a lot Ontario. of other. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Ontario yeah. had the, also still has the 15% yeah. foreign buyer tax. Yeah. So uh, it, is, it is not new, but mm-hmm. it is there. Mm-hmm. And uh, even just recently, I had somebody ask, their, their son is in Germany and he wants to buy a property in Victoria. And I had to explain this to them because the 20% tax is a biggie. It is. It's substantial. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Because um, you guys are a busy real estate firm. Like, mm-hmm. how many foreign buyers are you seeing? Not many. 
Even before the tax, we weren't seeing that many just within our office. And after the tax, the numbers haven't really changed. Um, So the people that were already investing in the market aren't really, in my experience, impacted. No. Yeah. No. I mean, we hear stories about people with the money, Mm -hmm. they will pay the tax. Um, but absolutely, uh, even us on the street, like we're, we're dealing with people, we don't see a lot of this. I mean, most everyone, it's a reminder, most everyone who buys in Greater Victoria is from Greater Victoria. Yeah. Like buying within Greater Victoria. Mm-hmm. This, the figures were something like close to 80%, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then the rest of the people are from other places in Canada. Yep. Alberta is right. a common one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What is that tax? The lifestyle tax yeah, you talked about? Yeah, the lifestyle right? tax, property transfer tax. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, things to be aware of. And uh, again, if anyone has questions about property transfer tax, uh, foreign buyer tax, um, they should give you a call. Sitka Law Group, the number again? Yeah. The number is 778-265-2677. Great. And you're off. You've got a great office with parking yes. at Cedar Hill Cross and Shelbourne yep. above the Coast Capital Savings. Yeah, lots of free parking. Yeah. How many lawyers do you guys have now? We have eight lawyers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we are a busy firm and, and we do offer complimentary consultations. And so if you do have general questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Yeah. And this is a biggie, especially uh, this time of year. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, We have uh, in the studio here with us as well, too, uh, our other show partner, Denise Webster, who is a regular here on the program. Hey, Denise. Hi, Tony. We're talking, of course, about uh, people who are non-Canadians and wanting to buy real estate. So we just had a conversation with Gurpreet about the fact that there's this tax people need to be aware of. Now, um, foreign or non-Canadians, if they want to buy real estate in Victoria, their mortgage process is quite different than yes, other people, so. right? Yep. Okay, so let's start with that. What What does somebody need to know? Like, for instance, this son in Germany that I just mentioned, he wants to buy in Victoria. Aside from this tax that he's going to have to pay, uh, how is he going to qualify for mortgage? Uh, there are still, uh, we're still using uh, traditional qualifying values of, of debt servicing, we call it, mm-hmm. uh, and they will look at the foreign income, but the biggest difference is uh, the the down payment required. So when you start talking about that foreign tax and the property transfer tax, uh, what you're also missing is that they're also going to be required to have about 35% down payment. As opposed to anyone else who can buy with as little as 5% down, right? 5%, right. So okay. if their income is not... Um, Coming from Canada, it's outsour- It's a foreign income, yeah. then they're looking at having 35% down. We have a couple of lenders that will look at U.S. In, uh, income and do a 20% down uh, requirement. But for the most part, if all the income is outside of Canada, they will need a 35% down payment minimum. So when somebody comes in, uh, they have the 35% uh, down payment uh, to qualify for this. What is, what's the process that the bank goes through to verify their income offshore overseas? Well, the income has to get its way to Canada as well. It has to be in Canada at least 30 days before the completion of the purchase. Yeah. Yeah. So then we also have to verify where did it originate from. And we will look at uh, um, the bank source, uh, the, uh, where it's coming from. Um, and they can be looking up to 90 days history to make sure, same thing, that there's no large lump sum deposits that can't be explained. So if mm-hmm. there was a sale of a property that that this lump sum of money came from, then they're going to want to see those sale documents of even the foreign property that was sold. Yeah. So it will like trace back. Like a property back. in Belize or yeah. something or so it whatever. can trigger quite a bit of wow. paperwork. Yeah. 
Okay. And and really key is is um, sometimes it's hard to get a large lumps of, of pay, uh, money into Canada, and you can't do it quickly. Yeah. So it's not like you can just e transfer. Exactly. Yeah. So that requirement of making sure that all the funds necessary for the purchase are in Canada 30 days prior to the sale is really really important. Because you could show that all this money exists outside of Canada, but that purchase is not going to close if it hasn't come to Canada. Just getting it over so here. that's really a conversation you have to have early on in the, like you're, you said, the due diligence. Before you're even making an offer, you better know about how you're going to get your money into Canada. For sure. There, now, there used to be something uh, in the older days, uh, what did they call it now, uh, undeclared? Like if you had enough down payment money as a non-Canadian, they didn't even ask questions about, your income and still, all that. Still, that does still exist. Really? Yeah, but they're really going to dive into your assets, your liquid assets. So um, I know uh, there's banks that will accept that 35% down payment, not do any income qualifying, but then they need to see that you have at least 12 months principal, interest, and property tax payments in liquid cash available in another account. Interesting. Which surprises me because that's the first year of your five-year term. But yep. that's one of the qualifications for some lenders that they want to see that you've got those cash payments. They're also making common sense out of it and saying, okay, you don't have traditional income, but we can see there is a source of income. And they may have looked at bank statements showing deposits of their income. Uh, but yet we can't traditionally qualify their income. So they take that next step to see if they've got some liquid assets for the next year that would pay the mortgage. And uh, they waive that debt servicing. So the thing is for the bank, the the risk is is lower because of a substantial down payment equity in the property. Yeah. But on the other hand, though, too, it is kind of it is risky for them because if it's a foreign buyer with foreign uh, uh, income, there's no way to, how do you go after these people? Yeah, well, they're, they're not going to call a job letter and a pay stub, maybe, yes. right? They're yeah. not going to verify that. I, I mean, I think really the risk assessment is that they're, they've put uh, enough equity down payment. So if it did go into default and into foreclosure, they know they are going to be able, and they've also really uh, vetted the property. Yeah. So it's a very marketable property they've purchased. So that those two combinations, if you bought quite a unique original property and it was foreign buyer, those two might not go together because they're also going to put a lot of weight into that property themselves. Again, coming from a risk assessment, if you went into default, into foreclosure, how quickly could they sell this property in foreclosure? Yeah. Well, the scary thing that I just got uh, off of you uh, before we go to a break here is the reminder that you need a 35% down payment and there's the property transfer tax and there's a foreign buyer tax. So somebody's really coming to the table with like 60% in cash in order to buy something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you even said that, Tony, sometimes, you know, we're not seeing a lot of this, but I think it's the initial conversation that they are actually being surprised. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, no, that is much more than I thought we needed. And they, they stop right there, the yeah. process. All right. Well, I'll hold that thought because we need to take a, uh, another break here. When we come back, we're going to be picking up this conversation with Gurpreet and with Denise about what overseas buyers need to do to buy a real estate here. Back in a moment. This is The Whole Home Show with Tony Joe on CFAX 1070. Thanks for coming back. You're listening to The Whole Home Show, and I'm Tony Joe. We're talking today about what non-residents, non-Canadians do to buy real estate here, not only in Canada, but in Victoria specifically. Uh, talking about things like the speculation of vacancy tax, also the foreign buyer tax, and what is required to get a mortgage if you're not claiming your income and revenue 
uh, from within the country here. We have in the studio with us our show partners. We have from the Sitka Law Group, Gurpreet Rondawa, and also Denise Webster from Dominion, Dominion Lending Center's Modern Mortgage Group. Uh, man, you guys are always great sources of information. Uh, and before we even begin this last segment today, I want to remind all our listeners, you have a question about legal stuff. Give Gurpreet a call. And your number uh, at the Sitka Law Group, Gurpreet? Is 778-265-2677. And for Denise? Uh, call me on myself, 250-889-4743. All right. So before the break, uh, we left with the, uh, uh, we had a cliffhanger talking about <laughs> a, a foreign buyer needs the 35% to qualify for the mortgage down payment plus property transfer tax, which, you know, is based on a uh, on the sale price and 20% foreign buyer tax. So if anyone from out of the country wants to buy here, they got to come with 55, 60% liquid cash down payment in order to buy. We've already established as well, too. I mean, Gurpreet mentioned, even you, Denise, as well, and me, the three of us, we actually are not seeing a lot of foreign interest, but we didn't really before the stuff came in anyways. Yeah, correct. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe more in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Not a lot here. Mm-hmm. We're not being overrun by mm-hmm. foreign buyers. No. No. Not in not in my field, my experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and experience. I allegedly do a lot with uh, foreign buyers, and still, it's not like my business is any more than five percent. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, that's a whole other story. Uh, there's another program, though, uh, Denise, the New to Canada uh, program, right? Yeah, I, I thought we should definitely touch on that because this is for our non-permanent residents, our permanent residents, or work visa. Um, so these are people that have uh, been in Canada uh, less than five years. So they are going to be looking to see when did they uh, start to work in Canada or when when did they get their permanent residency. And this is the program that a lot of people are aware of where you ha- uh, can purchase a home with 5% down. Okay. As little as 5%. Yeah. yeah. And so, so sorry, again, this is a not, non... Uh, permanent or non-permanent resident okay. or somebody with a work visa, yeah. but they have to have been in Canada less than five years. So really what this product is fr- provided by our mortgage lenders is uh, somebody that doesn't have strong Canadian credit yet. That's where we're making the exception because they're still income qualifying. They are working in Canada, but they just haven't had enough time to build a good credit history yet. Yeah. Because even when they did get here and they started work, they may not have been able to obtain credit right away. Yeah. So that's really what the niche product is, is that we're making exceptions because they don't have credit. Oh yeah, And the main thing is these are people that are deriving their income from within the country. Correct. Within Canada. But it's still it's still important to know that you know that it's it's pretty typical to everybody else in Canada qualifying, but we are able to make those exceptions for their credit. So they are providing a letter from their landlord mm-hmm. and proof of their rent payments, or they're providing their um, maybe their car insurance that they've paid on time for one year, or their cell phone. Um, so yeah, it's alternative credit to a uh, TransUnion or an that. Equifax report. I did not know about that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so people that come here to work uh, on a work visa or whatever. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and I guess, I guess the other really important thing to know is that that minimum 5% down payment must come from their own sources. They have to have saved that 5%. If they did want to put 10% down, that other 5 could be from a gifted uh, source from a family member. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, it's really important that they've saved 5% themselves as well. Good to know. Good to know. Uh, I want to take time for a quick moment here because both of you have to deal with this. And, Gurpreet, you mentioned uh, before we started up in the, in the program today about the fact that you've got new, string, more stringent uh, requirements to identify 
um, yeah. the client, right? So- exactly. Um, to identify the client and also to inquire as to the source of funds. Yes. So this is very new to us. Uh, the Law Society recently introduced a new rule requiring lawyers to now essentially inquire as to the source of funds. Where did the money come from? Exactly. Okay. For a down payment. Yeah. Um, this is a money laundering yeah, and it's a, right. I, I believe it's an anti-money laundering initiative yep. um, to, to inquire. Not only are you being asked these questions when you're meeting with Denise, for example, or why you're transferring funds to your Canadian bank, but now when you see your lawyer or notary, you're going to be asked that question as well. And remember, your lawyer is also representing your lender. Okay, if yes. you're yeah. obtaining a mortgage for your purchase, so you have to ensure that you know, you're know you being truthful throughout that whole process because anything that's disclosed to me, I must disclose to the lender. Yeah. So in other words, if somebody says, oh, you know, don't, don't I, I don't want anyone to know, but you yeah. know, I got this duffel bag full of cash, <laughs> yeah. right? I don't really see that. But if, yeah. for example, they were gifted a huge sum and they tell me they're going to repay it, yeah. that's borrowed money. Uh, and most lenders don't want your down payment to be borrowed funds. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the requirements. Of Very, the important. Mortgage, yeah. right? Very important. Very important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is new because you guys have, I know that uh, this is an area that Denise in the mortgage realm you've had to verify always yeah right so this is new in the law the law side yeah exactly and a lot of brokers don't aren't aware that we're now asking the question as well Uh Um, so it's definitely something to be mindful of we are going to be inquiring as to the source of funds and anything you disclose to your lawyer is going to be disclosed to your lender yeah. So imagine if we had conflicting information. Yeah. So exactly that scenario where I've been provided with a gift letter from an immediate family member and we've disclosed to the lender that 5% of that down payment did come from an immediate family member with no repayment yeah. necessary. And then they get to the lawyer and they say, oh, yeah, you know what, we'll, you, we'll, we'll probably start making some payments to mom and dad. Mm-hmm. We would like to pay them back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's conflicting information to the lender. Everything is above board and on the level nowadays because, uh, you know, Denise, you and I did a show some time ago talking about, uh, you know, the way things used to be done. And I I mean, I remember years ago where, you know, a a buyer would say, oh, you know, my mortgage person said, let's just write this letter. And it's, you know, you can't do that nowadays. Oh, yeah. Well, you could just declare how much income you were making in the good old days. Without checking, right? (laughs) Or whatever. Yeah. It's before my time. Okay. <laughs> but but even still, uh, you see, because when we're dealing with a client, we must identify them through f- through FinTrack. We mm-hmm. need to, uh, um, it's for the uh, Proceeds of Crime, Money Laundering, and mm-hmm. Terrorist Financing mm-hmm. Act, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we need to That's identify ID, them. That's your ID, right? You need, Denise, you need to identify them too, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, Gripreet, you need to, so someone's getting identified, they're, they're given their identification like a whole bunch of times in a real estate yeah. transaction. Yeah. But this is a great conversation to have because, you, you know, some borrowers can be uh, really uh, defensive and, mm-hmm. and feel like they're invading their privacy. So mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to recognize that all three of us are looking at some of the same requirements mm-hmm. is really, um, I think, important to get out there as, as understanding. And for me, on the down payment, um, I'm always very, very clear really early on in the process that what we're looking at is a 90-day bank account history of where any source of the funds are coming from. So if you've got four different bank accounts, uh, you're going to be printing a lot of paper, yeah. right? You're going to provide a lot of bank statements. And gosh forbid you started to move your money and thinking it was a good idea to get it all into one account. <laughs> so that's another conversation I have to have early on. Don't move your money yet yeah. because I know you want to pull your RSPs and I know you want them in your checking account and I know you want to pull your ta- tax, ta- tax-free tax savings and put it in your checking. But let's just go and deal with these four accounts separately before you start moving it. Because now if you just provided me a statement with all these lump sum payments, I'm still going back 90 days on all the accounts that it came from. 
So I've used a great example in the past, and it was uh, one file I'll never, ever forget, and we had over 150 pages for the down payment, and it really was sources. Funds were moving here and there. It was completely legit, but it just triggered so much paper because of moving the, the deposits around. We all have that one file that we never forget. You don't forget. forget. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but very, very interesting. Cause you know, we, we started identifying consumers in 2008. I remember cause I was the president of the real estate board at the time and we were the first ones cause even the legal profession uh, didn't have to in a real estate mm-hmm. transaction mm-hmm. back then. Um, but I guess again, it's just the government's way yeah. of making Cause money laundering is a big topic. Yeah. Right? It's a big topic. And our ID requirements have changed slightly as well. So I always suggest to anyone who's planning on purchasing is to have proof of citizenship. So have your passport, PR card um, ready for your appointment with your lawyer or other driver's license if you don't have those readily available. But they they do have to confirm your citizenship Mm -hmm. and proof of social insurance number. So do have your SIN card handy. And I know they aren't even issuing SIN cards anymore. So your latest tax assessment or something with your SIN number on it. Yeah. yeah. And this is really important too, because if the broker hasn't had that conversation about ID and they show up at the lawyer one week before completion and they actually don't have any Canadian um, identification. Store everything. It, it, yeah, yeah. On that new to Canada, that can f- collapse the, the purchase. Yeah. They're, wow. they're running around trying to get a driver's license with a week before. Right. <laughs> Well, so the first thing is, it's a reminder about how complicated this process is and how important it is that any buyer, uh, local resident or not, mm-hmm. has the expertise of people like you guys, mm-hmm. right? Like us in the real estate world, mm-hmm. a mortgage professional, a, uh, a lawyer to go through all this, because it's a complicated process. It is a complicated process. And there's so many parties involved, which can be very overwhelming for a buyer. There's the realtor, the mortgage broker, the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Insurance. There's insurance and every party has slightly different requirements, which I appreciate can be very frustrating for a buyer, especially a first time home buyer. Yeah. Um, so do reach out to your professionals, get some information on the process so you're prepared. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it's complicated enough as a, as a local, as a British Columbia or Victoria resident. And I think, you know, from our conversation today here, it's a reminder about the fact that it has been, it's been made very difficult for, and complicated for someone who is a non-resident mm-hmm. foreign buyer to purchase real estate uh, in Victoria specifically. Um, it is amazing that our market hasn't collapsed. But the reason why it hasn't collapsed is because it was never a big deal to begin yeah. with. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, hey. We're, and we're, we're not the first to have triggered this foreign buyer's tax. That's it, another thing to remember. Yeah. Yeah, but it's tough because, mm-hmm. you know, Gurpreet, I'm sure you've had these conversations too. I mean, I, I had a fellow from uh, uh, one of the – Lopez Island in uh, Washington State, and they just said, you know what, we're retired. Mm-hmm. We just want to have a little place for occasional use in Victoria. You know, the the, the currency conversion is mm-hmm. in our favor. Mm-hmm. You know, what does it take? And I have to bring up the 20%. Yeah. And then instantly they're like, no, I think we'll move somewhere else. Yep. Yeah. I Personally, I think they would have been great additions mm-hmm. to the community. But right. Who am I to say? <laughs> Yeah. Right, they would have been going out for dinner every night. They would mm-hmm. have, you know, been buying uh, stuff on our stores and all that. But mm-hmm. you know, they're lumped in as a foreign buyer, and that's what happens, right? Yeah. yeah. My goodness. Okay. Uh, contact information. If anyone needs to reach uh, the Sitka Law Group, Kurpreet. Uh, you can reach us by phone seven seven eight two six five two six seven seven or uh, through our website. Sitkalaw.ca, right? Sitkalaw.ca or one of our social media. Yeah, you guys are on Facebook and everything. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Excellent. Not a lot of law companies are. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Denise. 
Uh, call me direct on my cell, 250-889-4743. You can always send me an email as well, denise at denisewebster.com. And then the website is denisewebster.ca. Well, and as I remind people on the show here, of course, the, your contact information and mine is on the our page on the CFAX 1070 uh, website. And, of course, anyone who is a podcast listener can listen to this episode and all of the episodes. We've got a, we're at 150 now. Wow. Uh, yeah, since day one, uh, look under iTunes or Google Play for the whole home show with me, Tony Joe. Uh, so much great information. Hey, guy, again, guys, thanks for coming back. Again, complicated stuff to know, but that's why you guys are here, right? Thanks reach out to your professionals yeah, for reach help. Out to your professionals, and thanks for having us, Tony. Excellent. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Uh, and to our listeners, we'll be here for you this time next week.